and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast and we are up to number 146 and it's another three interview episode for you this week. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter and I've just about recovered from all the driving and walking when I took a few days off last week. The biggest challenge being trying to find places without rain. But we did get to visit some fantastic new places and do some nice walks and get stuck on narrow roads behind vehicles petrified of reaching the dizzy and dangerous speed of 20. We also had to replace our oven and had a toilet leak. And we also had what I consider to be the best ever delivery from an online purchase. Actually, it was the worst ever, but more on that in a moment. I also got to do a site visit for the first time in more than a year, so thank you to Stephanie Nish at Arla in Lockerbie, which is close to the border with England and just a couple of hours away from where I live. I'd made all these plans of places that I was going to stand and do some recording of me talking, but the rain was so hard I had to give that idea up and just quickly got some of the clips that I wanted in the town before I headed to Arla, semi-soaked. In a couple of weeks' time, that will be a video interview on the DairyReporter.com website, but it does take a little while to edit those, so I'm previewing it here on the podcast first. Anyway, back to my story about the delivery. I should point out that it's not the national carrier Royal Mail. They certainly wouldn't do this. I ordered something online, as I tend to, and was told it would arrive on Monday between 1 and 3. It didn't. Well, it did, only I didn't know about it. At around 3.15, I got an email saying your parcel has been delivered. Oh, no, it hasn't, I thought, but a quick check online said it had and it had been left in my designated safe place. Only I hadn't designated a safe place, and why the courier couldn't have knocked on my door because I'm at home working, I have no idea. Anyway, it wasn't outside, so I checked a bit more, and there was a photo of my allegedly safe place, and the rather blurry photo had some blue in the background, which looked a bit like our plastic recycling bins. However, our plastic recycling bin is in the garage. So we went and checked around the neighbourhood, looking very shifty, checking out everybody's blue bins in the neighbourhood. Sure enough, there it was, inside one of our neighbour's blue bins, already smelling and covered in garbage. Of course, the company that delivered it doesn't have any way of communicating with them by email, by form or by phone, which is pretty infuriating, but at least we got the package, I guess. Okay, well that's my little rant over for this week, and I should tell you who's on the show. We have conversations with Stephanie Nish, EHS coordinator at Arla's Lockerbie plant here in Scotland, Al Madonna, vice president of marketing at Cheerpack, and Bob Comstock, CEO of Tamarack Biotics. And now it's time for our weekly look at these stories you may have missed. There's probably ones I missed as well. So here we go. Milk Specialties Global acquired K's Processing Inc., Nestlé is the first company in Vietnam to use the SIG QR cap closure, and we had a couple of half-year financial results from Hochdorf and Glenbeer. Turtle Tree and Solar Biotech have entered a strategic partnership. In the UK, Eat Lean opened its new headquarters and is targeting major expansion, and Qatari dairy company Baladna is set to expand to Malaysia. 
Also in the same region, UAE company Rumela Farm is set to supply Dubai's address hotel and resorts with dairy products, and Vinamilk is going to create a dairy joint venture with Del Monte Philippines. There is one other piece of news, and it's my annual opportunity to pretend I'm reading the top 10 music charts again, because it's the Brand Finance Food and Drink 2021 Top 10 Brands, and the dairy sector was the only one that did very well to protect itself from brand value loss. And so, in reverse order, like the music chart, here is the Brand Finance Food and Drink 2021 Top 10 Dairy Brands. Up two at ten, it's President. Down one at nine is Almarai, and up one at eight, we have Vinamilk. And up a huge four places at seven is Enfamil. Dropping two to six is Friso, and up one at five is Amol. Also up one is Arla at number four. And there's no change in the top three, with Mengyu at three, Danone staying at two, and still number one is Ili. I'm done now. And you can check out all of these articles and many more at DairyReporter.com. Let's get to this week's interviews. And first up this week, we're talking with US company Tamarack Biotics, which has announced the European Commission has approved its True Active products for production. It covers all ultraviolet-treated True Active products, including MPC85, WPI90, and LTF, a lactoferrin product. So to tell us about the company, its products, and what the EU approval means, is the company's CEO, Bob Comstock. If you could just give us a bit of background on the company and what you do. Yeah, well, so as I mentioned, I lived in Singapore, and there we invented the world's most water-soluble emulsifier based on a sucrose monopalmitate. And one of the biggest challenges of that product was drying it into a powder because it became sticky at very low temperatures. So we've always been exploring low temperature drying technologies. And we found a technology in Israel that was invented by a Russian scientist who spoke no Hebrew and no English, but uh, his technology was pretty remarkable. And we built a pilot system in Singapore based on this technology. And I got some raw milk from the one cow that exists in Singapore to demonstrate milking to school children. And we sent some of this raw milk through the system, dried it into powder and sent it to UC Davis. And UC Davis said it's remarkable because they'd never seen a dairy powder that had retained basically all the functionality of raw milk. So from that nascent beginning, Tamarack evolved into finding ultraviolet technologies and developing those that would be effective enough to reach the same level of pathogen inactivation as thermal pasteurization. So we started off drying non-fat milk and then went to MPCs and we've now experimented with ways and lactoferrins and we hope to commercialize a full range of dairy ingredients, probably focusing more on whey because most of the immune active proteins are found in that fraction. What stage are you at now? Do you, you have products that you're selling? No, not yet. So we had some very bad regulatory advice here in the U.S. and pursued a generally recognized as safe approval process, which we obtained in 2017. But the FDA combated us and said, no, you cannot apply for the grass 
regulatory approval route with an irradiated product. And we argued with them for years. <laughs> I got nowhere. So unfortunately, we would be in production today if we had better regulatory advice. So we approached the FDA directly. And they said, listen, you need to do some additional experimentation to prove that your UV pathogen inactivation achieves the same level of safety. So we've been working with Tennessee State University and Washington State University to complete the few remaining tests that the FDA has requested us to do. We should have that done very soon, and then we will submit our full dossier back to the FDA to get approval here. But we now have approval in Europe, which was somewhat somewhat unexpected because we were expecting them to come back with additional questions. And our dossiers was sufficient to prove to them that our product was safe, so they gave us the green light to go ahead. And what is it about the product that you've treated that makes it different or better than similar product that isn't treated in the same way? So we know very well that thermal pasteurization degrades uh, and denatures the proteins that are found in, in raw milk. And mother's milk, whether from a human or a cow, is an amazing biofluid with proteins that are not available from any other source. Pasteurization was invented by Louis Pasteur before the Civil War in the United States, and, and no advancement has been made since that time. And though it does make our milk supply safe globally, it basically degrades the properties of milk that are so valuable. And we did a clinical trial with UC Davis several years ago and looked at vaccine response in an elderly population, because we know very well that as people age, their immune response becomes less active. And the ability to develop antibodies in response to a vaccine is a very good measure of immune activity. And it would certainly be valuable today with the COVID vaccines because elderly people don't develop as many antibodies as younger people. And the clinical trial proved that pasteurized whey improved vaccine response compared to soy by 17%. And our product increased it by 120%. The premise behind this was that the same bioactive proteins that impart immunity to a, an infant are able to rejuvenate immune activity in an elderly group. And we think these bioactive, undenatured proteins will have benefits for everyone. In sports nutrition, certainly all these immunoglobulins have been long proven by many papers and lots of research to have health benefits for both performance and recovery. And additionally, several years ago, a huge epidemiological study was done in Europe on 27,000 children from seven countries. And this study was called the Pasture Study. And it looked at why some children have very lower incidence of allergies than others. And what they found was it wasn't living on a farm or a city, but the key component was whether children consumed raw milk. And there were many countries where raw milk consumption is actually fairly popular as opposed to boiled milk, whatever. So what that study showed was that children that consume these raw milk proteins at a young age develop vastly lower incidence of allergies. So we've been working with that team in the pasture study for many years now because we believe these same bioactive proteins that we don't damage will reduce allergy development in children. And we're currently preparing a clinical trial that's going to be called MARTHA. And that trial will, will start hopefully next year based out of Munich, Germany. 
we'll be able to reduce allergy development globally, which would be a you know wonderful humanitarian effort. Absolutely. And so the products that you have would then be utilized in finished products and would additional processing impact upon the good benefits of the ingredients? Well, certainly, you know, the formats where our products would be delivered to consumers vary by many different companies. You can imagine all the very large food producers. We've been talking to these companies for many years and many different formats, whether you're putting this in a powder sachet or in a bar that isn't heated or even in a ready-to-drink beverage, there are solutions where powder can be dispensed into a previously retorted bottle, but the powder is never heated and goes on top of a sealed foil. And those kind of solutions are innovative and be very effective at delivering to the consumer product that hasn't been heated. So in our production, we actually never heat the dairy proteins above a cow's body temperature so that we don't damage them. So we're not changing raw milk in any way. We're just trying to protect it from processing damage. What are the products that you have, the, the true active range, but what does that range include? So, so far, we've made milk protein concentrates at 85% protein and whey protein isolate, 90%. And we imagine, we have not yet produced, but we would produce a true active lactoferrin product because not only is there a lot more lactoferrin after UV treatment compared to pasteurized milk, but the bioactivity of the lactoferrin, we believe, will be demonstrated to be much more beneficial. What are the challenges that you're facing in terms of getting this to be utilized by big companies? Because it would seem that if it's way more effective than the other versions that are available, then it should be a no-brainer for them to use it. Are there any challenges? Well, we're in discussions right now with potential partners to produce our whey products in Europe, and, and those are pretty advanced. There isn't a lot of change to the current production process that it results in micellar casein and a whey protein isolate. So we just replaced the thermal pasteurizers with ultraviolet systems and then changed the drying conditions to be less harsh. But otherwise, the process remains identical to current production. Would it be the same cost as like, if you had your WPI-90 compared to a product that isn't produced in the same way? What are the cost differences? You know, the UV equipment is somewhat expensive, to be quite honest, but, you know, that can be amortized over a lot of powder. We know our product will be more expensive than conventionally produced whey, but you also don't need an enormous dose of this. The clinical trial we did on elderly vaccine response was only eight grams per serving twice a day. Well, the cost to deliver these to consumers won't be prohibitive. Right. Okay. And I would imagine as well that companies that are utilizing this product in their own finished products would be able to sell it for a premium just on the basis of the fact that it has health claims. I believe so. Yes, of course. We're delivering to consumers a much more nutritious product. It's just less processed, closer to, to natural and, and should have significant health benefits that uh, would justify a premium price. And in terms of the communication to the end consumer, would that, that would be the responsibility of the company that's making the product? I think there's a, an extensive amount of consumer education that will need to be done to educate people about 
you know, the benefits of undenatured proteins. There's been a lot of interest in, certainly in the United States, in raw milk. I am not a proponent of raw milk because I think it's just too darn dangerous. But the benefits are pretty significant. So there's a raw milk dairy near me here in Fresno, California, that sells over 3,000 gallons a day of raw milk. And there's a lot of consumers who believe in those benefits. And, and we just hope to deliver a safe raw milk broadly. It's not just the fact that the proteins are more natural and more whole. It's you, You've got to manage pathogens as well, and your system does that as well. Yes, we reach the same level of safety as uh, thermal pasteurization. That covers bacteria and spores and, and viruses. And so what are the next steps now that you've got this status in the EU? To get the product on store shelves. <laughs> We're actively talking to a few different uh, dairy ingredient producers, and we're trying to choose wisely who a production partner will be in Europe. And we hope to uh, potentially get pilot scale or even pre-production scale samples out by the end of the year. And those discussions are going well, though? Yes. There's certainly a lot of interest from end users, the big food producing companies. So They've expressed their interest in buying these products, so the producers have a, a ready customer, so they don't have to start a new market. There's a lot of interest already. Well, that's always a big help if they're getting interest from the other side as opposed to you having to convince them. It uh, makes a big difference if they already know that there's a demand there. Yes, that's what's made my life a lot easier than it could be. So you said by the end of this year, samples. What about in the U.S.? Part We're hoping to have the, this whole, all the work done to refile our dossier with the FDA before the end of the year. So we're expecting the FDA to take some time to finish reviewing it, even though we've been in connection with them and communicating with them frequently. So this isn't going to be a surprise what we submit to them. We expect we'll be able to be in production in early to mid-2022. Our business here in the United States, we've partnered with California Dairies, the nation's second largest dairy co-op, and they will be producing our products for us here in California. So I guess all going well at the moment then. Just get this out to everybody. And if we can demonstrate that we can reduce allergy development, I think this would be an enormous improvement because today, 50% of children will suffer from atopic dermatitis, often eczema. They have hay fever, asthma, or food allergies. It's grown into an enormous problem that didn't exist 50 years ago. And, and the hygiene levels that we are using today have kept us very safe, but at the same time, have created a firestorm of allergies because people's immune systems are under-challenged. So we're looking forward to being part of the solution to that problem. Now it's to my trip to Lockerbie, to the southeast of where I live, a pretty little town close to the border with England, and it's also the home to an Arla facility. One of its staff, Stephanie Nish, won a prestigious Society of Dairy Technology Award not so long ago, so I went down to hear about it and tour the plant with Stephanie, who is the EHS coordinator at the plant. The first question is if you could tell me what you do here at Arla. Currently, I'm in my new role. I have been for eight weeks, and that's Environmental Health and Safety Coordinator. Basically, I'm working with someone else on site and we manage the environmental health and safety risks and concerns across both the creamery and the dairy. 
which can stem from the projects that we've got going on to any near misses or safety observations and it's a very varied job so I'm still learning. You're enjoying it so far? Very, yeah, because it's so different and varied and I've just touched on environmental in my degree that I've just done so I'm very interested in what we're doing as a site for that uh, in the coming years because sustainability is obviously so important. And what do you make at Lockerbie Creamery? We make cheddar cheese, whey protein concentrate and we bottle milk as well, fresh milk. So we used to produce butter but it's just purely cheddar cheese, fresh milk and whey protein. Is that for Scotland or for the whole of the UK? For the cheddar, we supply Aldi, Lidl and M&S for the UK and we supply Asda and Morrisons for fresh milk for Scotland. And we do some um, North England as well, but for the whey protein concentrate it gets sent to Denmark and then supplied for our customers that we supply the whey protein to there. And you've got a huge footprint here as well which must be useful. Yes very, it's good because it means we can chop and change and we can expand if we want to and we're very remote here as well and because we're quite far away from other sites it's quite a nice sense of community as a staff point of view. And recently you won an award from the Society of Dairy Technology, what was involved in that and how did you win that? That was for my final year project for the end of the Eden course for the dairy technology and we had to come up with a project that was going to not only pay back to the company but generate some sort of benefit and what I did was we were having yield issues probably towards the six months end of last year and we had workshops and various problem solves to try and fix why we were losing yield on our cheddar cheese and basically we work with our culture supplier Christian Hansen and they have technology that they have been trialing in other sites not in the UK globally to monitor how the card actually sets and if it can actually tell us something that we can optimize so we trialed it didn't know if it would work and I thought we have tried this technology before but this was pre-standardisation before we put the standardisation plant in so we had data to compare it to and we could see there was a drastic change made in our process so when we could see the change we made a slight recipe adaptation to one of our ingredients which was reducing the amount of rennet we use and that's what makes the curd and that's cost us a significant amount of money alone but that increased our yield dramatically because the standardization plant now concentrates up that fat and protein within the cheese and because that's now concentrated we don't need as much rennet because it's coagulating too much so we're over firming our curd which means we're losing a lot of fat within the whey which means it was too firm so all we did was make a small change and the yield came back in line which generated a big financial benefit to the business so when I presented that on the day in May to the Society of Data Technology there was loads of benefits that we can talk about with that and that's when the award came about. You were mentioning obviously sustainability is massively important right now. What's Mm -hmm. the cooperative doing on that front? Well, not only complying with our Scottish Environmental Protection Agency, we have to show that we are meeting the dairy roadmap targets as well and that involves reducing our emissions, so our energy, our water. 
we need to show that we're going to be improving that and being sustainable ourselves with the amount of power and gas that we use. Anaerobic digestion does that. So we've had a huge investment to implement an anaerobic digester, which will then generate our own gas and electricity for the site and power back to the grid as well. So that's going to completely make us sustainable as a site and hopefully going forward other sites will follow. Uh, We have followed a couple other sites but I think everybody should adopt an anaerobic digester at some point to remain sustainable within the dairy industry because we have to show what we're doing uh, to improve that with the way the climate is. And when does that all come online? We will be commissioning that hopefully 2022. At the moment, we're about, I'd say about halfway there. Hopefully, if everything goes to plan, it'll be the middle of next year that everything comes live. Then we're generating our own electricity. All right, and what will that mean in terms of like the sustainability goals that you're... It means that we will reduce our emissions by 30% and we will then comply with with SEPA as well. There's a goal that Arla has. It's a carbon net zero strategy and by 2050 and we have to show that we are changing and improving our process to meet those targets. And also you'll be contributing electricity back to the grid as opposed to taking... Absolutely, so we won't need to take any from the grid at all. We'll be contributing it back. So that'll be a big, big benefit. We did film the interview, so expect to see that on the website once I've got it all edited. As I mentioned last week, I was correct. I couldn't find all of the equipment that I needed, and now I remember why. A little while ago, I bought one of those mini video cameras that you can strap to your head or your arm or your body. An action camera, I think they're called. Only with me, it's hiking, not for jumping off cliffs or swimming through waterfalls. I remember when I got it, I used some of the equipment for that, but now have no idea where that equipment is, so I've ordered some more parts. Anyway, next we're looking at a new use for existing packaging, as Unilever recently launched Klondike Shakes in flexible spouted pouches in the US, which is a first. The company that makes the packaging is Cheerpack, and I learned all about them, the packaging, and a whole lot more in our conversation with Al Madonna, Vice President of Marketing at Cheerpack. So I guess the obvious first question is if you could give me some background about Cheerpack. Sure. We are the leading manufacturer marketer of spouted pouches in North America. So what that means is taking film, flexible film, we convert it into a pouch and then we we actually manufacture the spout or straw at our facility as well and the cap. We insert the straw into the pouch, and that's really our key deliverable, our core competency, the way we control the heats in order to get that good, consistent, safe seal of the pouch onto the straw is really what we bring to the table. We put all those pouches on rails. We ship them to our co-packer partners or brand owners, and then they fill their product through the spout, and then they use our cap and torque it on, and then they take that product, that's the finished product, and they ship it off to the retailer. So Cheerpack has been around since about 2009, relatively young company. Since that time, have just made our six billionth pouch, big milestone for us in June. Our core markets are really our baby food and applesauce. That's how we've grown up, especially with baby food, our quality uh, assurance, our systems, 
we believe are unparalleled. And so what we're doing now is pivoting. We believe there's a lot of opportunity in North America to grow the business in other categories as well. And one of them being ice cream, frozen novelty. We think that is a natural for all the same reasons why consumers have responded well to the pouch in baby food and applesauce. It's convenient, it's lightweight, it's portable. You can reuse it, put the cap back on, take it off. Mess-free, instead of handing your kids in the back of a minivan uh, an ice cream cone that's melting, now you can give them a pouch, they can feed themselves, and it's really virtually mess-free. So we also have an innovation center that we built recently, and that helps our customers get to market quicker. We can design shapes, unique shapes. We can even do injection molded spouts or caps unique to the customer if they like. So how did the partnership with Unilever start and evolve? Because you mentioned like the apple sauces and the the baby food. How did you decide to get into ice cream? So approximately two years ago, we first uh, engaged with Unilever in a different category, mayonnaise, the Hellman's mayonnaise. And they were looking to come out to market with a different packaging type, something that was lightweight versus glass or rigid plastic. You know, sustainability is such a big issue and challenge today in the marketplace. Pouches really address that. So we engaged with them, then ultimately delivered a smaller single service powder pouch that they put their uh, Hellman's mayonnaise brand in. And they were targeting a very specific market channel, you know, the budget 99 cent stores. That was one connection point. The second was one of our suppliers, uh, film suppliers, had some connections with Unilever and helped introduce us on the ice cream side. So based on those two points of contact, we entered into a journey in terms of developing this pouch for them. And how easy was that to come up with? Was it just basically retooling what you already had, or did you have to do a lot of work to get there? I'll call it a combination. It was our standard pouch size. It was no special shape, no special spout or cap, just polyethylene, our standard material. The challenge was on the coldness of the ice cream, you know, filling it and then making sure when the consumer holds it that it's going to be cold. By its very nature, but not so cold that they're uncomfortable for a long period of time. So we had to work with different structures with Unilever and do trials to get the right structure. The good news is our strategic partner in Japan, Hosokawa Yoko, has been uh, serving pouches for ice cream for many, many years. And it's uh, many hundreds of millions per year in the Japanese and South Korean market. So we had some learning there that we could bring over and share with Unilever. So it was a collaborative effort, and um, it appears that the consumer is very delighted because the sales are solid, and we hope Unilever is pleased with the performance so far. And so what are the advantages of this kind of packaging other than not ending up wearing most of the ice cream? (laughs) That's a big one. The second one is just the portability. So again, instead of ice cream cones or even hoodsie cups or other type of frozen novelties, this is very easy to go, you know, put into your cooler and take to a picnic or to the beach because it is portable. And once you're done with it, it's a flat product and then you can easily dispose of it. 
And how customizable are these if other companies were interested in doing the same kind of thing? You mentioned you can do different shapes. I mean, in terms yes. of like the printing and the sizes and shapes, how flexible is that? Very flexible. In terms of shapes, it's a very modest one-time fee for the cutting die. So, you know, if a brand has a certain look, um, a specific brand shape, we can try to emulate that either through the shape itself and or the print. You know, we do rotogravure, so extremely high quality. We can print up to 10 colors, anywhere from five to 10 colors. So we can match what generally the brand's style guide dictates for colors and look. QR codes are very easy to print, you know, down to a small level if the consumer would like more info from the brand owner and the structure. We work all the time with our supplier communities on various structures, depending on the application, whether it's you know, an applesauce, baby food, ice cream, or even non-food, you know, up to suntan lotion or alcohol. We can customize it. We can make the pouch clear if the brand owner wants the consumer to see the contents or non-clear. And now we are working on Recycle Ready as well. We recognize as a big opportunity for end of life. And is this a product in terms of food waste? How much of the product, say for the ice cream, comes out of the package? One of the big advantages of pouches versus other packaging types is almost 100% evacuation of the contents. You can squeeze that right out. So that's a big benefit to the consumer because they get frustrated if they can't get, you know, if there's 20% of the product still in there and they got to dig for it. So absolutely, Jim. Yeah, that's a good point. You mentioned end of life. Sustainability is high on everybody's priority list right now. What are the sustainability credentials of the product? Is it recyclable? It cannot be labeled as recyclable according to the Association of Plastic Recyclers or the Sustainability Packaging Coalition. Here in North America, those are the two real organizations that help the whole industry, packaging industry, message accurately if you can put recyclable on a package. And the reason being is because of the infrastructure in place. You have to check four boxes. And uh, the real challenge, it's not so much collecting at curbside because you could put a pouch in there. It's more sorting it. Because it's so lightweight, the sorting equipment in most recyclers will blow off the flexible pouch with paper. So it contaminates the stream. So that's the opportunity not to get it. And again, this is a big subject, but essentially what the pouch provides up front is it's the lightest package out there versus glass or rigid plastic or aluminum. And it's all about reducing weight. That's the first priority. We're working on doing mono material because that's preparing it, making it more ready for recycling in the future. It's the highest priority, innovation priority project that we have. It's been a, quite a journey, but we are targeting commercialization of this offering, and we believe we'll be first to market in uh, Q1 of 2022. And so the new product that you've been working on with Unilever, the Klondike Shakes, what's the reaction been like from both Unilever and from the end consumer? Unilever is very pleased with the launch. In fact, they've added strawberry to the vanilla and chocolate initial offering. So that's good news. We pull IRI consumption data, right, that tracks retail sales, shelf sales, and very positive in terms of the monthly sales rate since its launch. It continues to increase dramatically. In terms of sales, is it sold individually or in packs of a certain number? Packs of six. 
in a box of six. Seems like the timing's been very good then. You know, going through the pandemic, there's been a flight to, you know, comfort food like ice cream or frozen novelties. You know, this product is positioned well to help deliver that positive consumer experience. And is it bought frozen and you have to get it into the freezer? Yes. So do you think that this is something that's going to be more common now that you've been the first to market with this? We believe so. Again, in Asia, this is a big item for delivering frozen novelty and ice cream is in spouted pouches. And so this is the first to market in terms of a footprint from a retail standpoint for ice cream frozen novelty. We believe there's more opportunity there. Also, in terms of frozen type slushies, there are products in the market now, and we think that subcategory, there's a lot of opportunity in dairy in general. We have um, several major global brands using our pouches to serve their refrigerated yogurt products to their consumers. How do you work with your customers to deliver new products like this? We have a very deep and broad innovation pipeline. Uh, We try to stay very close to our customers and the voice of the consumer. We're constantly trying to innovate and bring new products to market. We look at specific new categories. And what are the applications? Will it be you know, hot fill or retort, which has been traditional for us, or ambient fill, and now frozen, of course, you know, flash frozen after it's filled, but also HPP, high pressure processing, really has started gaining a lot of traction. You know, people are looking for fresh, clean foods, and we've started uh, selling pouches into that market. For every dairy product now, there's the dairy alternative, so that's another potential market as well. Absolutely. We're looking at that. We've just come out with a product that is a no-spill and it uses a valve. We think in the beverage category, plant-based beverages, we think would be a very good fit for those that application. Does that typically come from companies that would already have that product or do you see the product and think that would be a good fit and then you contact them or, or does it go both ways? It really does go both ways. We go out with e-blasts and press releases to communicate what we're offering to these markets. And then we do, you know, receive uh, interest. But companies also reach out to us. They have a need. They'll find our website. They'll see us at trade shows and reach out to us and say, this is what we're looking for. And we are very excited to engage with a, uh, you know, a brand owner or CPG in their journey. And it looks like we might be starting trade shows again in the next little while. So that's good. Yes. The first one is the Natural Products Expo East in Philadelphia in September. So we plan to attend that. And then the week after late September is the PACX show, um, which is the big industry show for packaging. Really looking forward to seeing people again. You can see this kind of packaging being really useful in baseball stadiums and football stadiums as well. Correct. I mean, if you think of ice cream in a a ballpark, right, it could be an ice cream bar that starts melting if you don't eat it quick enough. Or even if you get an ice cream soft serve in a cap, uh, you know, you get that as, for example, Fenway Park. You need a spoon for that. So now you eliminate the spoon. So you're saving a lot in terms of disposables by having a pouch. It's all self-contained. And all the other things like the mess and the ability to be able to print up specific packaging and marketing for sports teams. You know, the uh, opportunities to brand and to market are are really endless. You've got that nice billboard area on the pouch. All right, great. Well, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you wanted to cover? 
I think I would leave this comment that, you know, Chairpack is a young company and, uh, you know, excited to partner with brand owners in the dairy space. And uh, we see this as a big growth area for pouches. It's just a natural. It's it's up to four times larger than the baby food category, which we sell hundreds of millions of pouches. So we think the opportunity for growth is huge. And we think it's um, the right time, uh, especially when you look at the younger consumers. They're part of the Capri Sun generation that grew up with flexibles. So very predisposed to using it and really addresses their lifestyle needs because of convenience primarily. By having ice cream in it, it sort of takes away that stigma of, oh, it's for babies. We definitely see that dynamic. And we're calling it the aging up challenge. Kids definitely, you know, they they don't want to be associated, of course, with baby food as they move into their preteen years. We agree. And we're trying to do that through new cap styles and applications, as well as new categories and even graphics on the pouch. And the last check mark could be really trying to connect with influencers that make it seem cool. We did have um, one customer who put hydrogen water in and it was used by the Golden State Warriors. And that's when they were winning the championships with Steph Curry and that whole team. So I think it's a little bit of a challenge, but I think uh, the market will come around. It's good for all ages. Especially the sports generation are getting so used to those, um, the power gels and yes. that, that looks kind of similar. That is taking away some of the stigma of it as well. I agree. I, you definitely see that growing tremendously. And that's it for another podcast. And a busy few days with school back tomorrow, dentist appointments, family birthdays, and trying to make a rather complicated cake, which will either be a triumph or a disaster. Let's see if I can even find all of the ingredients. Some of the stores here in the UK are, let's say, a bit less than 100% with their stock right now. And that's being blamed on a driver shortage because of COVID self-isolations. At least I have a ready-made excuse if the cake turns out terrible. I'll just say that I had to substitute soy sauce for the caramel. So, wherever in the world you may be, I hope you enjoyed the podcast and will join us again next time. And until then, have a great week. Take care, stay safe, and as always, thanks for listening.